out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, recording artist. It's Maura Lambert, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. One-time member of the band Faith Over Reason, who's released several records on Big Cat music, but also is um, very well known for her work with Saint Etienne. Yes, she was the person who sung Only Love Can Break Your Heart, the Neil Young classic. Anyway, look, this is the interview. You're going to find out much more, so take notes. I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Maura, take it away. Well, I lived in... I was brought up in Africa most of my childhood. Um, and my mum is Irish, my dad was Scottish, so very much grew up um, singing folk songs, lots yeah. and lots of folk singing, lots of family gatherings with folk songs. And um, I think apart from that, they, you know, Zambian radio, they had, a, similar to CanCon, you know, they would only play Zambian artists. So I, Heard very little music other than what my dad would play that was outside the African continent, with the exception of Boney M. I think Kenneth Kunda really liked Boney M and allowed them to be played on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Spoke music and Boney M. And then my dad's taste in music and he actually, he loved music. So um, he was very much, uh, when he had the opportunity, because we lived in Africa, we couldn't access records and tape cassettes as it was in those days very easily but when he had the opportunity he would he would buy something new and we would listen together um and I remember very much being 13 I was a very sickly child and I was off school for a while I'd been in hospital and um he had a David Bowie album that I just played over and over and over which one was that (laughs) um I can't remember the name of the album but it's the one with China Girl on oh let's dance Let's dance. That's it. Yes, nice. let's dance. So that was a, that was really. I had just a few discreet artists that I got to immerse myself in, but David Bowie was one of them. Yeah, uh, and that's that in the folk music. So yeah, an interesting, and obviously lots of different great uh, African artists like Miriam McCabe and um, people like that. But not they wouldn't be well known here. No, but years later, I remember in the 80s being obsessed with John Peel and recording the show, and he introduced mm. us to all those people like uh, the Bundy Boys and the Four Brothers and Imbelia Bell and, um, yes, Thomas McFumo and the Blacks Unlimited, I think they were called. So we we suddenly got very excited with all those sort of bands and artists that we used to try and go and see at Norwich Arts Centre and such places, even going down to London to see some of them. So it was, um, yes, but my geography of the whole African continent is a bit shaky. It's very shaky, in fact. I know there was, um, yeah, because the North, yeah, there were people like, um, there was a band called Dissidenten who were from North Africa who did an amazing album called Electric Sahara, which we loved back in the 80s. (laughs) It's great stuff. So when did you start playing an instrument or, or sort of singing? I was about around 12 and songwriting as well, um, very much. So at that time, I think we were living in Ghana. 
Right. And then moved to Nigeria after that. And in fact, I um, I didn't get to see Fela Kuti because he was in prison while we were there, but I did get to see his son and his band perform. Um, my dad used to take me to a jazz club. It was in a dentist's back garden and uh, he had all the, the great uh Nigerian jazz artists play there so we had we had great fun with that um yeah so but I started playing quite young and mostly because my mum wanted me to be able to play at family gatherings so we could all sing folk songs together yes so apart from David Bowie's Let's Dance album which let's face it the first three tracks are so instantly recognizable um when did sort of indie pop appear into your consciousness when I was a about 16, 15 or 16, yes. I moved back to, well, this part of the world, so Croydon. What, um, what year was that? 1985 or six, something like that. A fine year for music. Yes. A fine year for music. And um, Bill, who I ended up in a band with, gave me a... What is, a I almost feel like it was like his grandmother had this very, very old valve amp. And um, I started learning some tracks um, on electric guitar, which was great fun for me until it burst into flames one day. But it was my taste of uh, something other than playing folk music. And we, um, he was already in a band with Simon Roots and... I can't remember who on drums. They used to do covers at, this, at their school. And we, I gatecrashed one of their rehearsals one day and started singing. And they said, well, let's, let's us be in a band then. <laughs> so we start, that's how we started off. And we were doing covers of people like the Primitives and the Pixies and things like that. My God. So is this Bill who was the keyboard player and bassist with Placebo? Yes, that's right. That was later. That was his but next. Yes. That's his next chapter in life. So yes, yeah, so yeah. your indie pop world of the primitives. Did you say you didn't say the darling buds? Did you? There, I'm just made of that up. But no, but it's certainly off that ilk. But yeah. <laughs> it certainly was. So with when you sort of because it was kind of interesting having culturally not sort of experienced the the world that was I don't know. I suppose the progression of music for people of my age where you'd listen, you'd have the radio on, or the parents would, and you'd just listen to either radio one or radio two, depending. Who, who was closest and then it was top of the pop so we had that whole sort of the glam world and then sort of a bit of rock world and then I was a bit too young for punk but then you know there was there was just stuff on the radio and all the disco stuff and all the kind of prog rock stuff that your older brother listened to so you you didn't have that kind of uh, kind of oral experience of hearing electric yeah, light was... orchestra and status quo <laughs> I know my dad loved ELO so I did love ELO and I've loved them for a very long time but way before it was cool to love them um I went to boarding school when I was about 12 or 13 and listened to all the music that the boarding school girls loved like Duran Duran and Air Supply it was of of that ilk but I used to be pen pals with my cousin uh Darmid And I used to write to him and his friends would write back in the margins of his letters. And eventually I started writing to a couple of them. And one of them said something like, I hope you don't listen to the normal charts. I hope you listen to the indie charts. I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) So he started sending me in his letters. He'd say, now you have to go and listen to this. And he gave me a kind of a 
indie musical education. So I guess from my mid-teens, I was sort of picking up those things, but in a small way. Yes. And what what instrument did you start to learn or um, learn completely? Well, I was playing classical guitar. Um, Funnily enough, at school, I was studying classical guitar, which I gave up. Um, and uh, just kind of stuck to playing folk guitar. So that, and really, I've only ever played guitar to accompany myself. I'm not a guitarist. I'm a rhythm guitarist, I guess, if anything. Yes. Um, but I, I always loved to sing. Yeah. Singing was my thing. So when you, so how did the band form? Because this was kind of you. You brought your sort of first sort of releases out in the late eighties, early nineties. When did it sort of become a thing with a name? And and a sort of a lineup which was vaguely steady. That is a good question. I, you know, I cannot remember how we got Mark on drums because I'm fairly certain he wasn't on drums at the beginning, and I have no idea how we found him. Bill probably found him. Bill was it? Bill's the kind of logistical person in the band who would go out and actually do the practical stuff. So um, I don't have a memory of that at all. And then we would just start playing. We started playing on venues around Croydon. Yes. And it seemed you... like a thing that our friends were doing. You know, lots of our friends were in bands and it was great. It was part of our social life. It was just a great fun thing to do. Yes, the 80s, as I sort of mentioned, there was a lot of bands. I think part of it was kind of in the... in the Yes, well, in the early 80s, there was a lot of kind of high unemployment. So a lot of people in that 16 to 18-year-old phase thought, well, there's no future to quote you know the sex pistols and you know there was just literally not much on so there was a lot of unemployment and people just signing on and then there was things like the job seekers allowance and the enterprise allowance schemes which mm-hmm. gave you this you know opportunity to be a year just pretending to be anything or not pretending but you know saying I'm going to be a musician just give me my doll money for a year and that's where a lot of this kind of music started to sort of come out of and through yeah. boredom and desperation and um, probably just smoking lots of drugs during the day well we were still in school I mean we were young we were very young I was 17 when we signed our first record deal blimey that is young that is so I was sort of doing doing my a-levels and going off then off to do a gig after so yes well yes I think a few people had to sort of juggle you know that those commitments between some sort of school or some sort of job and playing in a band. I think Ian Curtis even did from Joy Division was in a sort of the county council sort of, was he the employment benefit office while sort of during the day and was in Joy Division at night, which was quite an amazing mm. thought. But yeah, so look, so so with the 80s came, which was very exciting, you had that punk period and then you post-punk and you had sort of goth and then you had new romantic stuff and all that malarkey. But then 83 to 87, this is the this is the crucial moment because this is the years of the Smiths and that's where the jingly jangly world of indie pop really takes off and then you had all those bands like the Triffids and the Go-Betweens and the Chills and the June Brides, who we loved so much. So, yes, did you sort of, because also at that stage, there were kind of three weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Makers, Sounds, plus there was also the John Peel Show. So there was these great, you know, these gatekeepers and every city and town in the UK, which is a tiny place compared to any other country, all had an alternative indie night. So again, people were had that opportunity to at least pretend or at least be faking it until they made it as in a band which was kind of useful because it kind of meant that you felt that there was some sort of progression so with the early days with the band this being the sort of late 80s did it sort of progress quite quickly 
I think so. And I, I just think there were more opportunities to play live. Yes. There were more places you could go. There was more places you could just pitch up and say, I'm in a band, can I play? And they'd be like, okay, well, on Thursday night you can open. <laughs> you know, I just, now it seems much harder to me. There's less venues. They're more selective about the artists. There's not so much um, opportunity for people who are just starting out and they're not necessarily going to bring a, bring a big crowd. There just seems to be less of that. Yes, I think. Uh, uh, yes, I think it, it all seems a bit of a mist, a murky mystery now. Whereas then, back in those mm. days, it all seemed to be like, oh, we've got a gig in Bristol, or we've got a gig in Leeds, or we've got a gig. In, <laughs> uh, yes, you know, it was just kind of there was these particular venues that yeah, I remember John Peel announcing from you know the Princess Charlotte to the Duchess to the the um, Square in Harlow. So you know, the Norwich has got the Art Centre as well. So can you remember your first single? This was uh, Billy Blue, wasn't it? Which was an EP. Yes, that's right. And we went and we actually went and recorded it in Luton, of all places. Um, but that's where our manager was from. So he he'd sourced a studio in Luton. So we went up there and I was very um well, I was just inexperienced in, in that world and I didn't really understand production and I was really anxious that it wasn't going to sound too glossy. And I think when you listen back to it, it's very minimal, the production on it. it's quite natural. Yes, and it does sound. Which I think worked worked well. Because you worked some later things. (laughs) Yes, and it has a timeless quality, unlike Mm. the sort of Trevor Horn production sound of all those Mm. bands from the eighties. But did you? Because you signed for Big Cat Records. Can you remember if there was a bidding war for the band? I remember there was a bidding war. (laughs) Oh, I no, I I was uh, you know I was really oblivious to the industry side. I was really oblivious to anything logistical. You know, I was very, I was a very lazy band member. I mean, I did do all the, you know, most of the songwriting, but really I just relied on Bill and everyone just to tell me where to show up. I'd be like, okay, when are you picking me up? Where are we going? You know, I'd never go, no clue. You know, he organised everything. He he organised getting us in front of record company people. Yes, and well, I, I think that's all fine. Of that. From, from it, well, it was absolutely fine, but I, you know, as to how it happened, no, I've got no clue. No. Really, we got signed for publishing very quickly as well. Okay, uh, Polygram, I want to say, yes, um, which was quite a, actually, we got a very good publishing deal very quickly, and I think that was Abbo's doing, um, mm-hmm. Stephen Abbott, who was our manager. Yeah, and was that a good and was that a good relationship with your manager, Stephen? With our manager, yes, we we were very close, and he was very dedicated to us. And it was the early days of Big Cat Records as well, um, so we didn't have a lot of artists. He was able to give us quite a lot of attention yes. in our early days. And then they suddenly got a massive roster, didn't they? But yes, and then, because we, we haven't done this show for quite a long time, most bands have this five-year narrative, which you can probably guess, can't you? You know, you have the 12-month honeymoon period. You know, John Peel gives it a play. You get a few gigs at the Norwich Arts Centre, which is very exciting, or one of those indie nights. And then yeah. and then you get this sort of, yeah, John Peel play, and then there's the John Peel session, then you get the first album. Things are going really well, because obviously... You know, from your first single, which was in like 1990, the the next album comes out a year later. So things are going well at this stage. Can you remember the kind of recording of the second or the first album, Eyes Wide Smile? 
I think we did. We do another EP before that. You might have done. You did faith yes. over. There was faith over reason, which was another twelve inch, wasn't there? Yes, and I think we did that with one of the the Sundays producer. I can't remember his name now. Oh, was that Barry Clepson? Paul Rabiger. Paul Rabiger. Paul Rabiger. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Funnily enough, I went to university with his sister, uh, but that wasn't why he was produced us. Um, so we did we did that, and then the album. I think we were. I think Abbo was hoping we would sign with someone to do the album, and then we didn't. We just did it with Big Cat. Yes. I think he'd been holding off, and uh, Stephen Malkmus produced it. Right. God, that's cool. And also, you did a cover of the Nick Drake song, Northern Northern Sky. Was that your choice? Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> when I listen back to it now, it sounds very fast, but it was in that jingle jangly kind of 80s style. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, went a- meet, we went to meet his autobiographer and um, it was really interesting because she she said she said to me, oh, uh, I'm still wearing his underpants and socks, you know. I thought, gosh, <laughs> <laughs> very odd. <laughs> yeah, that's very odd. She was real, she, God, just to clear that up, because that's quite, a, I'd never heard anything quite so bizarre. Um, so that was Nick, Nick Drake's underwear she was wearing. And socks. And socks. Well, go, go, Nick. Did you ask to see them? Just, just, no, just, I did not. I mean, now. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the 70s. They must have been really old fashioned. Probably, just imagine that. Anyway. That's a conversation killer, isn't it? Cold, a conversational <laughs> cul-de-sac, we call it. Um, yeah, so then, yeah, so then the album. Where did you record Eyes Wide Smile? We recorded it in um, Islington. There's a big studio there. I can't remember the name of it. The uh, Sex Pistols had recorded there. It's like a very, it was like a proper big, big, big studio. Right. Um, which was interesting. I think Stephen was probably a bit distracted by his own things. I remember he was doing a collage of cover art for one of his albums, and I'm not sure he was the right choice in the end. Yeah. Because I think it worked better when we when it was a less produced sound and a less kind of noisy indie sound. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it's kind of an interesting time because one thing that really sort of, I, I've sort of come up, come to notice is that kind of 70 87 period the smiths breakout obviously i can't can't emphasize that it felt like the end of one party and then the ecstasy world came along and there was this kind of the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds who wanted to dance to people like mm. you know the happy mondays and stone roses and and that kind yeah. of you know the soup dragons and there was, you know, the orb and everybody was getting very excited. Then you had the Seattle sound as well that had come over, you know, obviously from Nevermind that suddenly blew everything, you know, skywards, really. Did you, as an as a band, were you wondering where you fitted into it? Because I know there was this kind of North London scene of people like My, My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers, that kind of slightly, you know, indie shoegazing kind of, kind of genre, I suppose. Did you as a band sort of feel like, oh, where do we kind of, where's where's our gang? Where's our community? I think as a band, we, we, we didn't care enough about that. I know that sounds funny. We just liked what we did and didn't really reference other people. Um, I think for the record 
industry that made it really difficult to market what we were doing because we weren't quite indie enough and we weren't quite you know folky Sean Colvany enough and then just and we then we weren't quite um you know cranberries enough <laughs> <laughs> so we were we're just a bit awkward for them they don't we're, we're never quite sure where to put us it didn't bother us internally or maybe we should have thought about that um we just wrote the songs and did what we felt sounded good at the time yeah and did you as as a sort of a band did you have to was it a full-time thing when you were sort of coming up to sort of was it 94 you did the next album easy which was the last the last album you did Did, was it were you having to do kind of another side hustle to keep going or were you at university at that stage I went to university I missed a lot of courses and in fact I would have been failed except I went to speak to one tutor and I said well I'm a musician and I've been touring and that's why I've missed all all your lessons (laughs) and he said don't worry don't worry my dear I you know I sing Schubert and us us musicians must stick together so he passed me (laughs) <laughs> but there's a great it's a great place to be to a musician university because again you've got loads of venues you've got loads of young people around you who want to go and see music see live music yeah and at that stage it was a little bit of a the post Thatcher years and the John Major years really and there was a certain amount of kind of there'd been an, I don't know I suppose there had been a recession there was a little bit of coming out of the recession sort of by the mid 90s and obviously with Team Tony and New Labour, it was just party on, wasn't it? But um, the, the kind of the Britpop world started to sort of appear quite a lot with Blur, Oasis and Pulp and my my bloody Valentine. No, my um, my life story. I love my life story. Um, so, yes, did you, when you went to record the second album, did you know it was going to be your final album as a band or was it was it just that you were still on that kind of zeitgeist of making music? Well, um, no, we didn't know it was going to be our last album together. I think that um, actually, I'm getting confused because Stephen Bolt was produced Easy, not um, not the other one. Right. I think what happened was that Abbo sold his record label. He sold it to Big Cat. This. Something like that. He sold Bad Big Cat to V2 or someone like that. Right. And they just looked through the roster of bands and didn't know quite what they were going to do with us. And that was the discussion. And at the same time, um, Bill and our guitarist then was Tebow Steele and Mark had started playing um as a band together without me I think with placebo um and so it it came to which I was very offended by so um so it seemed like a place a natural place to stop if that made sense and then I went on to do over after that I made an album with over yes so when you were in the studio doing easy did it was there kind of um a sense of that this is going to be the the last the last hurrah of the band. No, not at all, not at all. If it, if anything, I think we thought it was um, going to be more successful than it was. Um, but when listening back to it, is I find it quite a hard listen now because it has dated. 
And remember what I was saying about Billy Blue was very, I wanted it to be very pure and unproduced sounding, but Easy was almost the opposite of that. And things like the the flange and things that we used on it have really dated it. Yes, I know. It is kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> so did you as a band have a have a moment to have closure and say this is to quote Jim Morris in the end? Oh, I think I probably just got very cross at one day and just said, that's it, we're done. Um, and not to say that we're on bad terms now, because we're not. In fact, Mark and I met up quite recently and, and Bill and I were in each other's lives for a while anyway, because he he married my cousin and things like that. So um, I'd like to get back and see them all together. We've talked about doing that. Maybe that was a lockdown thing where everyone was reaching out to people from their past. Yes, well, that's yeah. it. it is quite nice. I, mean, I must admit, I, I think there is a passing of time. I know I noticed that um, about twenty-five to thirty years, where sometimes the dust settles and people kind of can reevaluate what they did in the eighties if if they were in an indie band, and sometimes sort of make peace with it. And I think that it's kind of interesting. A lot of people I speak speak to often say. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to do this interview about five, ten years ago, but I kind of feel, feel okay now. I think the tra- slight trauma of the experience and just then moving on and thinking, no, that was it. And then, I don't know, life events change and, and you know, then somebody like, you know, Cherry Red Records brings out your collection and you listen to the music for the first time in decades and think that's okay. Because also with the 80s, I've noticed there's been lots of films and books coming out about it, which I'm sure... No one was interested in, you know, five, ten years ago, but suddenly there's mm-hmm. ones on, you know, the wedding present, the go-betweens, the chills, etc. you know, and everyone's been putting books out and pho- photographic books who who took photographs of that period. So it's been, yeah, I think you kind of reevaluate and think, oh, actually, it was quite nice, but emotionally it can, it can just, I don't know, it's like a blender, isn't it? You can feel a little bit churned up. Just I don't of. think the music industry is very good for your mental health anyway. Because you spend a lot of time on the road away from your perhaps family and friends that might keep your feet on the ground a bit or be or say to you, do you really think it's a good idea to go out again tonight and stay <laughs> out till four in the morning? I mean, I was I was not like that at all, but it's just a very intense situation. There's drugs and alcohol everywhere. It's, it's just not a it's not healthy. It isn't healthy and you're you're eating at odd hours and you're sleeping odd hours and yes not yeah. very good for your well-being plus, plus, plus you're often very young at that stage so there's no kind of yeah anyway. young and inexperienced and and whatnot it's it's going it's going to end in tears really so then you yeah so you bounce back though in the in the mid 90s with with your next band over Yes, and I loved making that album. I really loved making that album. We didn't go to a studio. We went to the crypt of a church in Camden, I think, or Little Venice. And it was just magical. It was really magical. And we were working with Patch, who was the drummer from the Sundays, and a double bass player. Yeah, it was lovely. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Patrick from yes, I've done an interview with Patrick from the Sundays. Yeah, it's so, such a nice guy. Yes. Um, and that, and I think, you know, that was that was going swimmingly. Um, but uh again, there was a record company things. I don't think the I don't think the album was what they expected. It wasn't commercial enough, maybe. 
You're right. <clears throat> so was this on global warming records? Well, they didn't pay for, for it. I think it was V2 that paid for it and then decided not to release it. And so then global warming picked it up. Yes. And we put it out. Did you become the uh, kind of a vocalist for hire? Because you worked with, was it Paul um, Oakenfold on one of his projects, didn't you? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> I that's... did. Yeah, so how did, how did you... Things. I, I worked with, um, obviously I did the vocals for a Sen Etienne tune. It was their demo, actually, that ended up being one of their biggest hits, I think. Yes, well, I was a huge Neil Young fan and went through all that period of, you know, sensitive singer-songwriter with Joni Mitchell and Carole King and obviously a bit of Nick Drake. But, um, yes, obviously Neil was right in there. So that must have... um, So how did that... Were you just asked to say, look, there's quite a good old track. Could you just have a bit of a sing on this? Yes, so... Um, that we were just in our social circle in Croydon, um, Saint Etienne, and so they just asked. They asked a couple of singers to um, do demos for them because they didn't have a singer. And I think at the time they had thought that they would never have a permanent singer. They'd be one of these bands that brought in guest singers. Yeah. And in the end, Sarah, I think, stayed and became a permanent singer. But when they did their demos, they were very much of the opinion that that's. But they were that was the model they were going to follow and had just have guest singers. So I, I did that. I was, I know, someone's tiny bedroom in Croydon, I think, that vocal. Yeah. Was it one of those, oh, just done it in about 10 minutes and went, oh, that's that's probably all right. And then went, my goodness me, it's just become a global hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was so funny because uh I think you referred to this a little bit there was this kind of emerging dance scene but we were still very embedded in the indie scene and I was like you just don't even put my name on it I think on the first pressings it doesn't have my name against it it's just by Anon and everyone used to try and guess who it was because I was kind of a little bit I don't know um I liked the song but it just didn't seem to fit in with what I was doing at the time and there wasn't the crossover between Indian dance that there is now no no this is yeah. true actually yes yeah. it must it must have felt quite strange constantly going around going yeah that's me that's me yep that's my that's my vocal because it was it just became such a club classic didn't it yeah yeah it's kind of fun. and still played now it's still played I am um, I I did sing I, I really always enjoy collaborating with other artists and so I have done singing for quite a few people not just Paul Oakenfold, but um, other indie bands as well, like Tram, I did some backing vocals for, and I, I loved that work as well. Yes, I know, you, you've got quite a CV, haven't you? So is it the case then, was music after this kind of period, have you managed to sort of keep a life in music or have you had to sort of, you know, do other bits and pieces to sort of make your solo albums? I went off. I went off to live in Canada, and I thought, oh, I'll be a solo artist, thinking that would be really easy. But obviously, because I'd been a very lazy band member and left things like production up to the rest of the band, I suddenly was like, oh, there's this whole other element I hadn't considered that's actually quite difficult. Yes. Um, so I did two solo albums, I want to say. The first one I'm not particularly happy with, although there's some nice things on there. The second one I liked better, but that definitely did have more of a dance crossover feel to it yeah I enjoyed it I enjoyed it at the time 
So this was the the O period. And then have you just con- you know been sort of tinkering around, sort of playing music when asked, or just kind of you know rehearsing bits and pieces? I play the occasional gig now. I'd say probably three or four times a year. I work at a college called the Orpheus Centre. It's a college for young disabled people. And they learn, they have a performing arts curriculum. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the tutors are musicians. And so we we sometimes get together and we do, instead instead of watching the students do a performance, we put on a performance for them. Excellent. Which is great fun. And I'm, I actually am playing at a music festival this year. But again, it's in it's for uh, um, to raise money for the Orpheus Centre. So right. that's kind of how I keep my finger in. Yes. Finger in funny. the music world. <laughs> I have to say, you know, it's an, it's an impressive, you know, run. Because, because as, as you mentioned earlier, it, it's... I mean, as a fan, it's just great that people, you know, I would have I would have great envy at people being on stage, being in a band with that dynamic, thinking it was wonderful. And now having done, you know, nearly a thousand interviews with people, I think, God, that is pretty hard work. You know, it's better than not doing it. But then at the same time, there is a sort of a, an emotional bit of damage that goes with being in the band, isn't it? You know, it's, it's yeah. you can't have one with the without the other, really. But most people are a little bit like traumatized by the end and unfortunately the dynamic of being with each other means that their friendship's gone and financially they've got no money either so it's like there's not (laughs) (laughs) apart apart from that it's great you know it's for us we go oh that's a great single oh no this is not such a great album we won't bother now so for them you know I've often asked people you know why did you give up it's like well because you were so good it's like yeah but the album that came out no one wanted it it's like oh yes because the next wave of and this is what I found the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds come along and they don't want to hear what, what what's been around before they they want their own sound and it's a bit like sorry granddad you know you're nearly 25 we you know you've you've already done two albums yeah. and you look at all those bands that you know were guests you know I I, I suppose one of the artists I'm sort of sometimes there's a lot I suppose but I know with Suzanne Vega she did two albums massive you know headline Glastonbury I think the pyramid stage on the Saturday and then the next album is suddenly like it's gone it's like sorry Suzanne that's now over. You're going to be a basically a struggling musician for the rest of your life if you stay in music. Mm. And it's like, and and that's that that kind of has gone, you know. And everyone has to learn how to navigate that next period, which is it is like, you know, not only the food and the white sandwiches and chocolate bars and crisps are bad, but also dealing with the oh right, no one wants to come and see me now. And it's like no, not really. But, and it's the lifestyle as well that doesn't necessarily work with having a family, for example. So when I was a solo artist in Canada, I used to go off on tour and I'd just jump in my car with my guitar. And British Columbia is a very big place. So you drive, you know, 15 hours to the next venue and it has a great indie music scene. But you you drive in your car for 15 hours to get to the venue. You'd be away from home. You'd do, maybe do 10 gigs, but so, such vast distances that you have to go. You'd be away for a couple of weeks, sleeping alone in a B&B or on someone's floor. And there's a point at which when you have small children, you can't be doing that. No. It's so fine. when my children used to come, my older children used to come, they used to sit at my feet while I did my concert. But there's just a point at which it's like, well, they can't really be staying up that late and they've got school tomorrow and I've got to get up and get them out the door. So 
you yeah. can do it with a very supportive family around you, but I think it's difficult. It's so yeah. certainly the life of a professional musician is beyond my reach now. Yeah, this is true. I mean, if there was something that you could have whispered to your 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there anything that you would have just said, oh, you might ignore this and you probably will, but just what I've learned in my life so far, I would just take this bit of advice on. Oh, I have no idea. What 16 year old would listen to me? <laughs> I mean, I would probably say the same things my parents said to me, which is have something to fall back on. You know, but have a finger in the music industry, absolutely. But have have a, something that you can do alongside it. Yes. Um, but of course, you know, young people want to. If you have a creative passion, that's what you want to do. And your mum saying, "Go to university and do a music tech degree" is not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> Talking well, about my own children here. Yes. Were your <laughs> were your parents kind of pleased or excited when they saw your kind of um, career take off with you know the band and then with your solo you know vocals as well? Yes, I think they were. I think my dad in particular was very proud of me, and they'd come sometimes come to my gigs. We played at the Edinburgh Festival. My dad was Scottish, so he he loved that. He thought that was amazing. We played um, supporting Jeff Buckley, and uh, I was. And that when he loved that, you know, he absolutely loved that. But at the same time, they were concerned for my future. And I, I did stay at university and I did get a degree. So it's all worked out fine in the end. It's but I think they were a little bit worried, you know, touch and go. Was I going to drop out? <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, Schubert kept you on, you know, got you through. So Schubert, uh, Schubert saved me. Saved you. That's such a classic. It is such a classic. Anyway, a massive thank you to Maura. Lip, um, Lambert, forgive me the time for that interview. I know, I nearly got it wrong. But anyway, look, Maura, massive thank you. And um, yes, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to um, contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check them out. Keep it, um, yes, just enjoy. They're free. That's life. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. Stay safe.